We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Don Durrett, author, investor, and founder of goldstockdata.com. Don, how are you today? Uh, great, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Always always great to have you, Don. And of course, we're recording this just after the new year here on the, on the 4th. So I'd like to start by kind of getting a sense of the macro picture now that we're into 2024 and really understand how you're looking at the year ahead. Of course, Powell came out kind of mid-December and softened his language on rate hikes. So is this the setup that we've really been waiting for for the metals? Well, yeah, for me, I mean, this is really uh, the big question and really the topic I really want to talk about is heading into this year, you know, what are the expectations for gold? Why, why do we want to be bullish? Why do we want to be bearish? And, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's all really coming together. I, I did my newsletter and I, I said that, you know, 2024 is going to be the year for gold. So now, now how, how can I defend that? So, you know, if we look at the macro picture, I mean, last year, you know, the, going back all the way to 2020 in October, we started having this run in the stock market and it ran really, really hard from October all the way till August. Then we had a bit of a, you know, and then I expected it to, to, to roll over in September, October, and it, it did, but it only got to 4,200, which was the important level in the sand, line in the sand, and it held. Mm-hmm. Once it held, it just started rocking and rolling in November, December, and we had this strong year. We got all the way almost to 4,800, pretty close to an, all, an all-time high. We did get all-time highs in the Dow and the NASDAQ, but not in the S&P. S&P is 48.18, so it, now it's down about 4,700, so it's kind of off a little bit. But the reasoning for that run last year, I think, is somewhat misplaced, you know, with Wall Street. Wall Street is is really focusing on near term. It's focusing, you know, for instance, what made that run take off in October, November uh, was the expectation, November, December, excuse me, was the expectation the Fed's going to cut rates. So if they're going to cut rates, oh, wow, that's great for the stock market. So we had this you know, Santa Claus rally, and it's based on that idea, okay, they're going to cut rates. And so the market's going to come back alive. Now, now we need to look at, okay, is that is that a legitimate reason for the stock market to be at these levels? Is that a legitimate reason to be bullish for the economy for 2024? Mm-hmm. Now, for me, as an investor, I'm not a trader. I'm, I'm in this for making big money, you know, big alpha, you know, 3x, 5x. That's you know, minimum 3x, but I'm trying to get 5x plus. So I'm I'm basically an alpha investor. So I don't really care about the near term, but I, I care about the thesis. I care about, you know, where we're going. And I've always said that the only reason you should be involved in gold and silver miners is because you believe that this debt bubble is going to pop. So with that background, let's go back to 2008 when it really all started, I mean, we can go all the way back to 2000, but I'm going to go, I'm going to start at 2008 and kind of shrink it down a little bit. So 2008, you know, the Fed came in and basically ended that recession fairly quickly by lowering rates. Um, it was, the recession was pretty much over in June of 2009. 
And then from 2009 to 2016, they kept rates at zero. And basically, if I could, if I could just interrupt for a sec, I think, you know, you're kind of answering one of my, one of my next questions. In that period in 2008, did the Fed adopt really a third mandate on top of employment and price stability as well? Yes. And I think this is what Wall Street and, and the economists are missing. The, the smart macro people have picked this up, but not, not really Wall Street. And, in the, and what I say is this idea that the Fed's mandate has changed. It used to be basically two-pronged, which was you know making sure that we didn't have inflation um, and then and have you know full employment. It, those were their two uh, objectives: keep people working, basically, and not allow inflation to go to take off. And it has expanded significantly since then. Now, since two thousand eight, the Fed's mandate, and we saw that was zero rates from two thousand eight to sixteen. Their mandate now is, in, in addition to keep people fully employed, but to basically make sure, if you will, the stock market um, is you know going up, because from 2008 to 2016, every single time the stock market did any hiccup at all, you saw this money injection come in. Where the hell was that coming from? Why? Right? That's that. That's that new mandate that I'm talking about, and that's why when the, when Powell pivoted last month um, in December, when he pivoted to basically saying, we're not going to go and fight inflation down to 2%. Well, if it gets there, great, it got there. But it's not really our objective anymore. Um, our objective now is we, know, we need to cut rates. And, and they're cutting rates because inflation was never, in my opinion, their top priority. Their top priority is this mandate you're just, you're kind of alluding to, to this mandate of economic stability on the financial system and making sure that you know Wall Street is healthy and uh, the financial system is healthy i think that's their number one mandate do not allow crisis do not allow you know financial meltdowns it's all about manipulation and and kind of plugging the dam holes in and making sure that nothing basically breaks and so inflation i think is a secondary um focus of theirs so now and i think that they raised rates too fast, um, basically from zero to five percent in less than two years. It was, and then, and and by raising them too fast, they basically have damaged a lot of industries. They damaged the banking industry, the housing industry, and the auto industry. All three of those are basically struggling right now. And so, now let's let's go back to my uh, three, uh, my what I was talking about earlier. So. 2008, 2016, you know, the low rates and then the managing the economy, um, making sure the stock market didn't fall, keep injecting money. Then from 2017 to 2019, they tried to raise rates and it didn't work. And you started getting some, a little bit, we started getting getting a little wobbly on the economy. And everybody's like, what's going on here? You know, is Powell, you know, you're losing control or whatever. And then Powell, he raised rates and then he lowered rates. Before before 2020, before COVID, he was cutting rates. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. They don't talk about that. If you go back to 2019, he was cutting rates. Why was he cutting rates, right? The economy is supposed to be growing. So in 2019, the economy was actually starting to, you know, this whole, you know, the economy live on its own, grow on its own. It was already having problems. And that's what I think people really need to recognize is that what people are expecting right now on Wall Street is this idea that the Fed 
um, can kind of land this plane here and get everything back to normal. Well, things were never normal from 2008 to 2019. They weren't normal. Mm -hmm. They were. It was basically a Potemkin economy where you had government um, doing deficit spending. If you guys, if you remember, uh, debt was was going up a trillion dollars a year through that whole era. We, you know, we were growing the economy with deficits. So we were doing fiscal stimulus through the whole thing in tandem with zero rates. This was a Potemkin economy. You had basically, you know, and then they doubled it up. And then you got to from 2020, 2020 to 2022, we actually increased the stimulus uh, dramatically. We, we, you know, and then we had rates low and we were printing like crazy mm -hmm. just to prevent a recession. And this is on top of this you know, Potemkin economy going back to 2008, it actually goes all the way back to 2001, but we're not going to go there. So you get to 2023 and everything seems to be going back to normal because they're raising rates and things are slowing, but you're not going into recession. However, the reason why we weren't going into recession is because you had fiscal stimulus where they had this $2 trillion deficit. Well, that $2 trillion deficit is added to GDP. So remember last year, we had all this GDP growth. Well, the government is, whenever it does deficit spending, when it spends money, that's GDP. It shouldn't be, but it is. So they, they can, so it's basically a fake growth. When you, when you can basically, you know, borrow money, it's like saying that you have a credit card and you go and spend 20 grand that you made another 20 grand. You, that's what they're saying. You know, that's total BS, right? <laughs> you didn't get $20,000 in income just because you spent it on your credit card. And this is what, this is the reason why gold is sniffing around 2000 and the reason why the bond market had some issues uh, back in October is because we're starting to get to the point now where, you know, the credit card bill, you, we, the U.S. government's debt cannot just go to infinity. You know, we're at 34 trillion adding, geez, how much are we going to add this year? We don't even know. One trillion now is, you know, small. Now we're looking at, you know, two trillion plus per year. Um, so... You look. You add all these things up. Now, what what Wall Street is saying right now is that look, we're going into a soft landing because GDP, we're growing. The economy's growing and inflation's going down, and they're getting ready to lower rates. It's a soft landing, right? But what they're not ignoring is all of these things. And I'm going to give you give you guys twelve assumptions here that they're making. And if you can check the box and, and say all 12 of my assumptions are BS, then yeah, bet on that, you know, 10% growth on the, on the S&P this year. But so here, here it is. So easy piece. So basically they, they get rid of uh, QT. QT goes away. We bring back a little bit of QE. We lower rates. You know, easy peasy. The economy goes all back together. Okay, so now let's look at some, some of the assumptions. So the first one was I mentioned earlier about the economy you know, from 2009 to 2016 and 2019, uh, it was basically growing on free money. So that didn't damage the economy because we don't have free money anymore. So free money's gone. So is the economy going to grow without free money? I'm like, good luck with that, right? Um, then you have debt expansion. So that debt expansion, we were adding debt at, you know, 8% clip. GDP's, you know, two and we're adding 8%. That, that, that math doesn't work. How, how long can you add debt at, you know, 48% clip? Um, you know, something's going to break there. So now we had the work from home movement. So the work from home movement, that's not really, we're not seeing that go away. 
So if that doesn't go away, what are the banks going to do with all this commercial real estate downtown? That's going to start hitting home this year. There's more headwinds for you. So so we're just going to ignore that commercial real estate bubble. And it's not going to, oh, don't worry about that. It's not an issue, right? Economy is going to be fine. Okay, then you got the lag effects. This is number five. You got the lag effects of high interest rates. That hasn't hit yet. That That's not going to happen, right? It's like, wait a minute. We, we, got, we got to get through these lag effects before we get all bullish. Uh, the next one is the weak PMIs and the weak LEIs. You know, we just had the PMIs last week. They came in about 47. You know, anything below 50 is negative. So the PMI has been negative for what? I think like almost two years now. It's a long time. And so suddenly the PMI is going to turn positive. Um, that's another assumption, right? And then the LEIs have been, you know, totally in the dump, the leading economic indicators. The LEIs have been negative, I think, for it's about 20 plus months in a row. They're going to turn, they're just going to suddenly get good, right? That's another assumption. Number seven, we have weak growth in Europe and Asia. Those, our corporations get over 40% of their profits um, internationally. And if you have a recession in those areas, and if you have slow growth in Asia and you have a recession in Europe, our corporations are going to, that's headwinds for them. Those headwinds hit the stock market. So that's another one they're assuming, oh, no issue. We just ignore that, put it under the rug. Next one is uh, rising bankruptcies. Ba the chart, if you look at, at bankruptcies right now, they are going up. They're back, they're back to like 2008 levels. Suddenly, those are all going to halt. That's another assumption. Number nine, the inverted yield curve. They're basically saying it was a false indicator. It's never been a false indicator ever. I was going to say for the first time ever. This time, oh, don't worry about that one. Number 10, the Buffett indicator. This is why Buffett's in cash. And he's smart. He's one of the smartest investors of all time. Buffett's going, oh, man, this isn't good. This isn't good. And that's his indicator. They named it after him. After him. And that one's screaming. It's all time high. It's like, oh, no, don't worry about the Buffett indicator. No, it's an, that's another one we don't have to worry about. Uh, number 11, the economy can grow with short-term with short rates above 2%. Now, remember, we're just talking about this year, 2024. So we have rates right now about five and a quarter. So they're not going to get those down to 2% this year. So we're, we're pretty much, the Fed funds is going to be above two by the end of the year. So you're not going to have, back in 2019, when they tried to get rates, uh, they were below, they tried to get them to two, they tried to take them to 2% and it didn't work. So they're, they're saying, oh, don't worry, you know, we're, and when I say above 2%, I mean, I, we probably won't even get above 2.5%. I don't even think they'll get the Fed funds down to 25 by the end of the year. So we're not going to have low rates this year. And so, oh, don't worry, we don't need them. Well, we've needed them in the past. So why is suddenly the economy so strong? Okay, and the last one is number 12. And I, I could come up with 20, but I, I stopped at 12. And these things are also obvious. These are all done from the top of my head. This is just a tweet that I did. It's like a lot of this stuff is really obvious stuff. I mean, there's so many, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so number 12 is the large U.S. Uh, budget deficits. So our budget deficit this year is going to be about $2 trillion. So these budget deficits, at what point do they matter? It's like this is this really this final one really goes back to this whole idea of MMT and how we've been ignoring it since 2008 is I, I call it the elephant It's the reason I invest in gold is I don't believe that you can have two trillion dollar deficits 
or $3 trillion deficits and the economy just ignores it and grows. And again, it's kind of a fake economy. But that debt, I just think it matters. I think it's just going to have a lot, a lot of negative impact because someone's holding that debt. And if you're not generating enough wealth, then somebody's taking a hit there. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you don't get it's like the free free lunch thing. You just can't borrow, 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 and nobody's taking a hit. It's just people are making money. Everything's positive. And that's kind of this MMT mindset that we have. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying buy gold, buy silver, buy mining stocks, because this is fantasy economics. And have a long-term view and just realize the U.S. government, U.S. economy, U.S. dollar, U.S. bond market, all four of them are basically getting ready to hit a wall here. We're really close. Um, I think it's going to be in the first half of this year, probably the first quarter when it all starts turning. Everything starts turning south and this belief that we're going to get in a soft landing goes goes away. And that is what we need for gold to go higher. Mm-hmm. Thanks for my long answer. <laughs> no problem. Don, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of GDP growth by fiscal spending. I remember talking to Lawrence Lepard recently here, and he was mentioning to me that we also saw a lot of growth just based on really the inflation, the inflation price of things. So it's not necessarily that the economy even grew, but even if we sold the same amount of things for that nominally higher price with the inflation attached, that counts as growth too. So it's it's really interesting to try to sit down to think about that data once it comes out. And even though it looks positive, it more than likely for a small number of growth like that isn't actually considered growth from a realistic standpoint, I would say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, me and Larry, we work together and we think a lot alike, very much alike. And we both got into gold for the same reasons. You know, we we are basically believe in Austrian economics and what the U.S. is doing and even Europe and Japan and China are doing is not it basically it's it's political economics is what they're doing. It's not, you know, smart economics. It, 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 it buys you time. It's political expediency. Mm-hmm. A perfect example was COVID in 2020. Let's go print four trillion. We can we can print it, can't we? Sure, print it. And then what happened? They created inflation. So, you know, they thought they could get away with it. Political economics. And Von Mises says, you're not getting away with it. And they didn't. And now inflation came in. And, you know, I call it the Potemkin economy. I mean, it looks great. I mean, you go and you look and you go to the stores and they're full, the restaurants and they're full. And you go, why? Everything must be going great. Look at everybody spending money. But you need to look at look at it holistically. You know, mm-hmm. where did they get that money? Where did it come from? You know, what can maintain it? What can sustain it? And and so, a lot of people are like, you know, who's I watching? Yeah, I was watching somebody who was saying that you know, debt's not an you know, people don't understand debt. It's 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 not really that important. Well, it's not important until it is. And for me, um, the U.S. is in trouble because of, of two things. Um, 
The first one is we have become dependent on debt, literally dependent on it. We can't pay our Social Security. We can't pay our Medicare. We can't pay our defense budgets. We can't cut them. And we, so we have to pay through them through debt. So we're, we're basically in a situation where we're, we have to borrow a trillion dollars plus a year. But now, with this manipulation required to make sure everything doesn't melt to the ground, it's gotten higher. So now, with, with the inflation, our interest payments are now, I saw this week, we're up to $1 trillion in interest payments alone. So we were about $250 billion, 250 to three. So we've added you know, more than 100%, you know, let's just say $700 billion in added um, budgetary, you know, money that we have to borrow. So we were about at 1 trillion, and now we're 1.7, all from all from interest. So we're pretty much stuck about, you know, 1.5 to 2. And, and, and if we go into recession this year, and I think there's an 80% chance we will, we're probably going to go over 2 trillion this year. And that... <laughs> We've gotten to the point of no return. So our debt to GDP now is 122% the last time I did the numbers on it. Once you get to, you know, Luke Groman does a great job talking about this, about how once you get at a certain point, you can't come back. It's impossible. And he talks about the the ways back to do it. Once you once you get out, out of balance, this far out of balance, it's the way, the only methods of getting back to normal are just, you know, they're not politically viable. So we're we're pretty much bankrupt right now. And Wall Street's ignoring it and buying stocks, um, just completely ignoring the fact we're bankrupt. And the only reason why we're not bankrupt yet is because our creditors haven't basically called in the loans yet. And when I say call in the loans, I mean, basically dump them and say, you know, give me cash for these. I don't want them anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, the way our treasuries work, they're liquid. You want to sell them, you can sell them. And that's pretty much what's going to happen here once things start, once the house of cards start to fall. Now, some people are listening right now and say, this guy's just full of it. The U.S. economy is the number one economy in the world. It's going to always be that way. The U.S. dollar is going to be the reserve currency. It's always going to be that way. Everything's fine. The The Treasury and the Fed, they know how to manage issues, crises. We always manage them fine. We always get through periods. The business cycle always rolls over. I mean, what he's saying is what they were saying back in 2008, nine. Look what happened. You know, look at the stock market from 2008 to today, right? The S&P went from 666 all the way to 4,700. And this guy's talking about a crash. Come on, mm-hmm. man. What's he smoking? Come on, man. <laughs> but I, I'm telling you, this year, 2024, is the year that we see the emperor's not wearing any clothes. When we get to the end of this year, it's going to be it's like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. That's going to be the end-of-year thing. We're in trouble. What do we? How do we? It's basically going to be just like 1932, although we won't have a depression. Um, I mean, 1929, 1930, um, where... Once the thing all, we're not going to crash. We're not going to do that. But what we're going to do is we're going to stop growing, which is kind of what happened in the 30s. You just stop growing. There were a couple of spurts in there. But the rest of this decade, I think 2024 is the year that we stop growing. And, and when you have a leveraged economy like we do, you can't afford to stop growing. You, we're, we're basically, America is basically a corporation. It's a kind of a grow or die situation here. 
So if we stop growing, that's bad. That's really, really bad. And, you know, a lot of people are talking deflation and, and they're right in many respects. And the deflation is when, you know, you can get asset appreciation, like stock market, you know, housing won't go up, stocks won't go up. No, how you can't get any appreciation. So if you can't get any as asset appreciation, how do you give people raises and bonuses? See, that's and everybody talks about how deflation is very damaging. And this is this is how it's damaging. So even if you have no growth, it's very it's it's basically quasi deflationary because you're not getting a raise. You know, there's no growth. If I don't get any growth, how can I give you a raise kind of thing? And, and so you muddle, you get these turn into you basically turn Japanese and you have a lost decade and there's no growth. And that's where we're heading. We're heading into, we're going to, I call it muddling because we're going to be stuck in the mud. And that's what happens this year. And once it happens, this is where gold and silver is going to just blast off. That's what, remember earlier in this conversation, I said, I'm going to give you a reason why I'm bullish for gold. Mm -hmm. These are the reasons I'm bullish because once the economy stops growing and these debt bubbles start popping, people are like, I need, I need a safe haven. I can't, I don't know where to put my money. Put in the stock market, it's not going anywhere. It's dead, dead money. Put it in bonds, that's dangerous because they're printing money and that's going to create inflation. It creates inflation. My bonds are going down. Uh-oh, where do I go? I'll go to real estate? Oh, no, real estate's going down too. There's nowhere to go. Nowhere to have no place to hide. And so it's it's going to be gold, silver, and crypto is the place to hide, believe it or not. Now, I'm getting... There's a people listening right now that if they're still sticking around, they're going, this guy's nuts. That's the only place to hide. He's, he's just talking his book. But I, I've been analyzing the economy since 1980, and this is where it all, where it's landing right now is where I've always expected it to land. I remember back in the mid-80s, I told my dad, I said, Reagan's economic economics doesn't work. It's like... Okay, he did fine in, you know, 81, 82, because he was taking us out of the recession. But 84, 85, 86, he was doing the same thing. I'm going, this isn't, this isn't good economics. You, you do realize this. <laughs> but he, he was a Reagan fan, so he, didn't, he thought I was nuts back then. It's like, we're fine, Don. Everything's doing great. Look at the economy. It's the best economy we've ever had. It takes years for this stuff to unfold. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's exactly what... What I want to get your take on as well is, you know, we've heard so many times, especially kind of being in the gold community here, that the economy is going to crash, the recession is here. You know, we hear this over and over again. Why do you think it's 2024? You know, why do you think this, let's say, crash, for lack of a better word, is on our doorstep now? Um, the reason why is because last year, we probably should have had a recession last year. A lot of people expected one, but you had a combination of a lot of money that was still it was still making its way through the system that they printed mm -hmm. in tandem with with the fiscal stimulus. Those two things kept people employed, and those two things allowed it was kind of a mini crack up boom where things just kept going up when they really shouldn't have. Where you just you know. Good example is was the November December rallying the stocks. It's like if you really looked at looked out in the next six months, you would have sold, but everybody was buying because you know they just in in denial. 
So I, I just think that that last year's move was really that final little crack up boom where people were doing the irrational. Mm -hmm. You know, I gave you the 12 reasons why this, this, this economy is in trouble here. It's not in great shape for it for now. I mean, the Fed has been basically manipulating this thing since 2008, right? In 2009 and forward. And so the Fed, that's what the Fed's doing. It's basically juggling it. But they had tools. They had tools to do that. Their tools were, hey, we'll just take rates to zero. Well, they can't do that in 2024. So I just think that that all the damage that was done from, from 2000 to 2023 all through the, all the damage that was done through manipulation basically when you give people free money you create bubbles but you, you you basically break the free market and it creates a lot of leverage so we have a lot of zombie corporations out there that shouldn't be alive and they're only alive because they had cheap money access to cheap money hmm. and right now they're losing money i forget the percentage it's a pretty high percentage of companies today that have negative free cash flow it's a pretty high number. It's pretty shocking, but everybody's in denial. People and companies are losing money right now. And everybody thinks everything's fine because those seven companies made the stock market look so great last year. Economy's not in great shape. And so it's a matter of will these low rates. And again, I told you, we're not going back to zero in 2024. The lowest we're going to go is maybe 3% on the 10-year. That's about as low as you're getting. In this in in 2024, and then yeah, and, and then it might start going back up by the end of the year, which is going to scare the hell out of people. So you you have you know people say, oh, you're a doomsayer. I'm saying no. I'm basically analyzing this thing totally logically, economically, saying if you count every dot and you connect every dot, this thing screams problem, 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 going all the way back to 2000 to the day. You can't just print your way to prosperity and i'll wait it out you know if it takes me you know two three four more years for this thing to finally you know burst i'll be i'll, I'll you know I'll wait it out so what i've done i've been doing this so i started back and give people a little overview so people you know they think i make any sense they can kind of follow my strategy so I started this in 1991. I, I bought a gold mutual fund because I believe that Reagan's and the U.S.'s trajectory of using debt to maintain the economy was not going to work. Now, through the 90s, I looked like a complete fool. But once you got to 2000, I started to look smarter. And so and, and met that investment from 1990, so um, that mutual fund is actually has zero cost basis today. So I've gotten paid in dividends that, that covered it. Um, and it's going to be worth probably two, that just that one investment is probably going to be worth $250,000 when I end up selling it, maybe a little higher with zero cost basis. So it's, it's worked out well. So then in 2004, I wanted to start buying silver stocks. Well, guess what? There were no silver mutual funds back then. There was no silver ETFs back in. SIL and SLIJ came after 2004. So I had, I had to learn how to analyze silver mining stocks. Mm -hmm. There was no books out there. So I, I, I ended up writing my own book in 2010 after I learned how to do this. So I started buying juniors and I didn't know what the hell I was doing because there was no books. I didn't have, I had to learn self-learn. And so I started collecting stocks basically 2004. Today I have um, 164 um 
stocks, individual gold and silver mining stocks, and then another um, nine have three mutual funds for for majors. And they're basically for income, and, and then I have six ETFs for diversification. So I have those nine plus I have physical silver. And then I have 164 positions. Now, some people say, 164, are you out of your mind, Don? Well, for me, I don't care if a company goes bankrupt because I have so many positions. I keep mm -hmm. my applications low. But guess what? If you're right, um, so I, my, my, um, what I do is I do about a quarter percent to a half percent of my allocations if it's a high-risk junior. Then I do about a half percent for a uh, somewhat of a risky producer, if you will, um, or that I like it. And then I'll go sometimes, a few times, I'll go up to 1% for a quality producer. So I keep my I keep my allocations very low. But guess what? If you if you do a half percent or 1%, it can turn into a 100 bagger or a 50 bagger, and you can make a lot of money. For instance, uh, and some of these stocks, it, it's it's amazing. You don't have to put a lot in if they're, you know, become baggers. Um, so I bought uh, Crocodile Gold. I invested $7,000 in Crocodile Gold back, I don't know, 2005, six somewhere in there. They ended up, they got bought out by Kirkland Lake and then Kirkland Lake went to the moon and now I own Agneagle Eagle. So that initial 7,000 is now worth, I think 135,000. So that's well over a 10 bagger. And it's gonna be, it's gonna be, I think it's gonna go up 3X. Now, the only reason I haven't sold it I haven't sold any of it, by the way. I took zero profits out of it. That's I'm the whole buy and hold. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to go up another three uh, x three baggers. That's going to go up four times. So that's it's going to go to four hundred thousand dollars off a seven off a seven hundred seven thousand dollar investment. So you don't have to alloc. You don't need to put big allocations in these stocks. If they work, they work. Mm -hmm. And 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 so that's that's how I do it. I just collect stocks. And then buy dips and make sure that I have a big enough position in a stock. For instance, I right now I think the best place to be is in producers. And because silver is so much highly levered versus versus gold, silver, you know, is less than 50% of its all-time high. So I think you're getting at least 2x leverage on a silver miner. Mm -hmm. So I basically said to buy the Mormons. The Mormons, the reason my friend called them the Mormons, because you, you generally don't want to marry a stock. And, and I actually believe that because you don't want to have high allocations. If you marry a stock, you might have a high allocation. But he said, I'm gonna, I'm buying the Mormons. I go, what? He goes, Yeah, I'm gonna marry a bunch of these the silver miners. <laughs> so okay, I'll call them the Mormons. So I came up with seven names and and I wanted to make sure that I had a good allocation in all seven. So the seven are, you know, Hecla, Pan American. First Majestic, um, Fortuna, which is you know not not really a, a silver miner. Gosh, I think I mentioned I said First Majestic, um, Silver Crest Metals uh, is another one. I think I'm missing one, another producer in there. Oh, I'm Coor. I'm missing Coor, Coor Mining. And I said to buy these to the bottom. Now, Coor went all the way to 225, 220. I think I don't think I got to 210. Not I got it to 210. And then it bounced all the way almost to four dollars. And now it's back down. Um, Endeavor Silver. Oh, yeah, Endeavor Silver. That's the last one. They're not um they're the one of the few Mormons that haven't bounced. 
Uh, a trader, somebody told me the other day they bought some at $1.82. These stocks are all basically print as five baggers at higher seller prices to me. And so I think the risk reward works if you're a long-term investor. I don't. I really don't think people should be trading these stocks or even short-terming them. You got to be a believer in the stuff I'm talking about, about mm -hmm. you know the debt bubble and whatever, because these are speculation, highly volatile stocks that can, you know, you can go under, you can go under twenty five percent in two weeks, and most people can't handle that. Me, I, I have no problem um, because I have so many positions. It's like unless the story changes on the stock, I'm, I'll hold it. I mean, I might hold it down to nine percent down and then double up on it if I like the still like the stories. But it's unbelievable how some of these juniors, how cheap they get, even though, you know, the silver in the ground, the gold in the ground didn't go anywhere. It's like, why are these stocks so cheap? Um, Southern Silver, for instance, probably my favorite optionality play for silver miners. It's like, you know, they have 300 million ounces of silver equivalent in, in one project. And nobody wants nobody wants to touch this thing. It's like, wait a minute, it's trading like 30 cents an ounce in the ground. Um, it's like, it's pretty insane. And so that stock has, you know, crashed a lot from, you know, it's all time high. Um, so stocks like those, you don't really need high allocations and then they, they can really take off. So I, that's just overview. I want to give people that an overview so they can, they want to emulate what I do. Mm -hmm. Don, you mentioned, you know, when this crash comes, you're going to hide out in gold, silver and cryptos. Are you including the miners in gold and silver? And how do you see, let's say, the dynamics of a mainstream market sell-off affecting the metals and the miners? Yeah, it's two questions. I'll do the first one first. So where do I hide out? So my belief, so when I got into this, you know, back in 1991, I was always in it for the, for the U.S. government basically running into trouble with their bond market. Mm -hmm. For me, it's all about bonds. Bonds is actually are more important than stocks. It's kind of odd, but it's true. Bond market has trouble. The stocks are, they're in big trouble. Um, and so I think that the U.S. bond market is in big, big doo-doo. And because we are dependent on foreign money, we cannot finance our internal, our internal, internal debt because it'll just suck too much money out of the economy. And you just won't be able to grow. And so if you, if those foreign dollars dry up, I think everything it's problem city, basically. And I think that's going to happen over the next three years. So my feeling is that when this thing does finally pop, you know, gold will go to at least $3,000. And I think $3,000 is a very conservative number. Now, if you use a GSR gold silver ratio of 30, mm -hmm. that takes silver to 100. Now that that might, people will say, well, that's a little aggressive. But a GSR of 30 really isn't crazy talk. It was at 39 in 2012. Mm -hmm. So I think if silver would have kept running to 75 back in 2012, it would have kept running. The GSR probably would have squeezed down to the low 30s. So a low 30 GSR is not crazy talk. So I expect, you know, silver, when gold goes to, to 3,000, to be somewhere between 80 and 100. And so those are, those are some really, really high numbers compared to today, especially for silver miners. Uh, you get this $80 silver, these silver miners are going to be generating a boatload of free cash flow. Now, again, $3,000 gold to me is a conservative number. I think we're going to at least 3,500. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm actually, and this is kind of kind of crazy because I created a website. I wrote a book. I've been collecting miners for 20 years. 
I'm actually walking away. I'm going to sell to the top here. Mm-hmm. I My 164 positions will all be sold in this next run. I, I probably won't own a single gold miner when this thing's over. And the reason why is because it's a lousy business. It's a cycle business. It's kind of, you just want to own it. The only time you really want to own this stuff is when it runs. Mm-hmm. You don't want to own gold and silver miners during uh, downturns or flat or when it's flat because it's, it's an ugly business because you, they're, it's a cash business. They're constantly raising money. It's just, it's bad business, but gold is the one safe haven that people are going to run to the old extras pyramid, the bottom of that pyramid. That's where people run. They're going to run to gold and the middle class will run to silver because they can't afford gold. And so what I think um, is going to happen is this run's going to last for about two to three years. And so I'll start selling at $50 silver. So 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. I'll sell a little bit of my miners each time it goes. And then I'll hold a little bit at 100. But by when, once we get to 150, I'll be out of my miners completely. And then once gold gets to about 3,000, I'll probably be about 70% out of my miners, somewhere around there. And then I'll be completely out about $4,000 gold. And I will stop those out. So let's say that I say that I'm selling to the top. So let's say that we only that we top out at like say 3,400, and then it starts correcting back down. Mm-hmm. Once it starts correcting back down, I'll be getting out. And so if we get volatility, um, you know, I'll probably I could get you know be completely out. But I'm thinking within two to three years, I won't own any miners. This is a once. I've always thought this is a once in a lifetime trade. Mm-hmm. I call it a trade, but it's really an investment an investment for an outcome. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the Michael Burry play where he put all this money into Mark MBSs. And then once it was over, he got out of those and said, okay, we're going to go back to stocks, pivot it out. It was kind of a, he saw this once in a lifetime deal and he did it. And the thing that blows my mind is I haven't heard too many people like talk like I do about once in a lifetime, you know, put 90% of your money into these miners. Mm-hmm. And let's wait. Let's see if that, let's see if we're right or not. I don't think I have ninety percent. Um, I do if you can in count my physical silver. But if you if you reduce my physical silver and crypto, it's only about eighty four percent of cost basis. Mm-hmm. So you know another piece that I think maybe escapes a lot of people that are looking at this this mining sector from the outside in right now are why the miners are so undervalued compared to the underlying metals. So what explanation do you have for that? You know, as we've seen gold hold pretty steady here above that $2,000 level and really not give up a whole lot of ground in the last couple months here. Well, it's definitely something I've thought about a lot. And I think it's a combination of two factors. One, the margins haven't been as strong as they were. Um, prior to, like, if you go back to 20, 2009 to 2011, the margins were better. Mm-hmm. So you had, you know, better free cash flow multiples and you had better sentiment. And there's the second one. So lower margins in combination with sentiment. I don't know which one is is a more powerful in, in that influence or impactor. I actually think it might be sentiment. So sentiment died in 2013. 
And I remember 2004 to 2011, there was, there was some really, really strong sentiment. I mean, if you look at how when gold went from 250 to like 750, the miners were flying. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely flying. There was some really, really strong sentiment in the miners. So we had some really big multiples and things were doing well. Sentiment remained strong all the way until 2012. We really didn't have any, you know, dying. And the reason why is because we never had a real big crash. You had 2008. 2008 only lasted about one year. So a one-year correction is nothing. It wasn't enough to kill sentiment. So sentiment was basically, it was there. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't have what happened in 2013, 2014, 2015 when gold just, you know, collapsed. You know, you went from 1900 all the way down to 1100. You know, went down about almost 50%. Mm-hmm. And and the miners went down more than that, you know, 70%. It, it was it was brutal and and it never sentiment never returned. And 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 this is, you know, this is something that I harp on all the time is that the kryptonite for gold is the economy. It's like if the economy is strong, people are like, I don't need no stinking gold. I'm fine. You know, the only time people buy gold is when they have to, when they're afraid, when they're nervous. And that's the number one driver. That's the only, in my opinion, the technical move. Now that we can talk about this, I I, I don't think I'm, I think it's a good time actually to pivot away, is that the reason why gold went from 1800 to 2100 was really technical and not fundamental. That's why I said it. We're not breaking. We're not breaking out here. It's just a technical move, mm-hmm. and the technical move was the ten-year and the dollar dropping, and the do- and the dollars came back a little bit, and the do- and gold got stuck here. Gold yesterday was down. You know, it dropped. I don't know twenty, thirty bucks. It was trading about twenty, thirty. Then it popped a little bit today. But gold, in, in in many respects, that move was more technical than fundamental. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, it was moving because of interest rates in the dollar. It wasn't really moving because of fear of people needing gold. They were trading gold, technically. You need fundamental reasons. You want people to need gold, want gold, not trade it, not to make a little profit. When gold was running from 250 to 750, that wasn't a trade. That was like, that was what the hell happened to America when 9-11 hit? Where's America going? I don't trust my assets. I want some gold. And then after 2008, you had the GFC and people are like, oh, my God, is the, is the financial system going to melt to the ground? And then finally, by 2012, everybody was like, oh, we're good. We're fine. And then I don't need no stinking gold anymore. The fear, fear just went away. And then for three months from uh, May of 2020 until August of 2020, that you had fear because of COVID. And they're like, oh, this COVID thing could damage the economy. And gold went to the moon. And then everybody was like, oh, maybe go. No, it's not. Fed, Fed's got this under control. They're going to print $4 trillion. We're fine. And then gold went away. It's went away now for over three years. We're almost at the three and a half year mark of this correction. And so I'm, what's going to happen is fear is going to return. And it's going to return even higher than it was in 2008. And the reason why fear is going to be higher is because Wall Street now is going to go, uh-oh, how do we restart this thing? It's like, it's it's almost going to be like we're going to have technology and, and the inventor is going to die and, and nobody's going to be able to figure out or restart the machine kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, oh no, or you know, or you owned a bunch of crypto and you lost your private keys. Oh no, we're, we're broke. 
it's going to be that type of fear level. Uh oh, how do we how do we get out of this? And I think that fear is going to really start in the second half of this year, um, as people start to recognize, you know, all those assumptions were false. And once they're, they're once they have to recognize this, Wall Street has been living on basically GDP and employment. They've been living off of that and inflation coming down, which is not necessarily a good thing, because even if inflation comes down, does that mean costs come down? No, it just means costs don't go up. But the high costs are still there. You know, it still costs you $15 to go to McDonald's now when it used to cost you 12 So those high costs are still there. Did you get a raise? Well, not everybody got a raise. So that's what I mean. The inflation problem is still with us. That inflation problem doesn't go away easily. And, and that's another one that, you know, Wall Street's kind of ignoring here. Um, it's like, and I, I actually don't think that the two, the, this whole 3% inflation is, is even close to normal. Um, you know, in, you, you can see with your bills, the stuff that you pay, you're, we're getting, a, you know, we get these things in the mail and they're kind of shocking to us because they're not 3% increases. You know, a lot of times they're 20% increases. You know, what the heck just happened there? Where did that, why did that cost jump so much? Right? Because the actual inflation over three years was probably 25%. And so a lot of these companies are not getting around to raising their, their rates back up to, to incorporate that 25% increase so that they're at nor they want to be at normal. Everybody wants to raise everything up to 20, 25%. So we're seeing a lot of these services companies do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we're we are seeing, you know so we're seeing that so done with the fed you know realistically kind of accepting a higher base level of inflation rate as you said before they're kind of abandoning that getting to that 2% target are we going to see in your opinion a scenario much like the 70s where we had these waves of inflation and is it going to be kind of siloed to commodities versus you know, seeing other sides of the economy like luxury goods come back down. Um, yeah, yeah, I absolutely think it's going to be like the seventies. History is going to rhyme where we have waves. That this wasn't a one and done thing, because once you kind of let the inflation genie in, it's really hard to put it back in the bottle. And so, and especially when you don't try to put it in the bottle, which is what kind of what's happening right now. They're like they're 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 pretending it's fixed. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to take their foot off the QT pedal, I think. And once once things once the stock market goes down, then QT ends, QE begins. So more more injection, more stimulus, which will create inflation. We'll be so we'll basically go back to four percent, I think, fairly quickly. And so you get that monetary fiscal stimulus going in, monetary fiscal uh, inflationary pressures, which I think will create another wave. And then the third wave, which, you know, I'm not sure if I'm right on this, but I just think that I am. And that's, I think that we're going to have another energy crisis. And the reason why I think we're going to have another energy crisis is because the U.S., 60% of the U.S. oil production is tight shell, tight oil. Well, that tight oil, according to the numbers that I've read, is basically peaking. There's no, they don't have any, any, any place else to drill these things. 
or they can't drill them fast enough to offset the decline rates. I mean, they've drilled thousands of these wells, and the Permian's really the only place left that's growing right now. Eagleford isn't growing anymore, and then and then the one in North Dakota, is it Bakken? No, I can't think. Uh, those two, they're not growing anymore. And so they've already basically hit their peaks. And so we have the Permian. How much more growth can the Permian go? And then when does the Permian roll over? And once the Permian rolls over, it's going to roll over fairly quickly. And I think we're going to have an oil crisis this decade, which is going to be wave number three of inflation. And then how does that, does that start to slow down the picture for the miners as well? Because, because obviously that's going to bring a lot more cost to mining the metals. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's actually, in 2024, it's actually kind of a perfect storm for the miners because you get a recessionary year, which will keep headwinds from oil prices going up. Mm-hmm. So the and then and then gold spot goes up to like twenty three. I think it's going to go somewhere between twenty three and twenty five hundred. So let's say it goes to twenty four hundred. So you're going to add four hundred dollars a margin. Once you get to twenty two hundred dollars, you're at thirty percent margins, free cash flow. That's that's for me is the that's where you need to be thirty percent. Once you get about thirty percent, sentiment comes back. I would actually want to talk about this earlier. I'm glad it came back around. Uh, silver miners. Um, on margins, um, they're they're just getting killed right now. And so all, most of your gold miners also mine silver. So their silver, all that silver revenue is basically not turning into profit. So that's hurting a lot of the gold miners as well. It's not just hurting silver miners, it's also hurting the gold miners because most of them have some silver production. Some of them actually have silver mines. Um, so we need silver to get all the way to 30 to get a 30% margin because their break even is about 21, um, 21, 22. So you got, silver's got to, got to make quite a move here. But here's the key. Once silver gets to 30, the margins are fine for the industry. Sentiment should return. At $30 silver, silver sentiment should return. You got the margin thing going. And then I expect silver to run from 30 to 50. It'll only take about six months is my feel, my gut. Three to six months and we're at $50 silver. Once you get to 30 and then the margins start kicking in and the sector should be healthy. You get $30 margins, a few quarters of that is going to be really, really healthy. Investors will have a hard time ignoring those stocks real hard time because 30% margins can really fix a balance sheet in a hurry. Do you have a feeling, Don, that, you know, there was a lot of retail investors that bought silver at say around the 28 to $30 level. Do you have a sense that there are a lot of those investors that just want to get out no matter what, once they get back to that break-even point? Well, there'll be more people coming in. I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are, don't think like me. I mean, you really have three types of investors. Me, I'm I'm the buy and hold long term. I don't even care about the next year. I I doubt I'll sell any stocks net this year. Maybe if silver gets to fifty, but I, it's an outside. I, mean, I don't really care. I don't care. I really don't care about annual returns, mm-hmm. long term. Then you have people who care about long term care about annual returns. They don't want to, they have this idea, I don't want to lose money. I just want to have some annual returns, 5, 10, 20%. I'm happy. 
And so they dabble in these miners because they could get a 50% return on a stock. And so, but they're still focusing short term and, you know, silver gets to 35 and they got a hundred percent upside and they're out of those types. And then probably the largest uh, uh, basket or category is the traders and the traders, they only care about the next quarter or a day or this week. You know, they don't go much beyond a quarter and they're the biggest ones. They're the biggest influencers. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have, um, but, but they will keep buying, you know, they will keep buying up, up moves. And that's, I think that's, what's going to happen. And so then you're going to get new investors coming in and, and the new investors that are going to be coming in are a big chunk of them are going to be your annuals. The guys that are just coming in there going, Oh, I'm going to go in there and grab some money for this year. I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to go make, you know, two grand. They're just chasing, you know, short-term dollars. I think you're going to see a lot of people like that. The people like me, you're, you're late to the, you're late to the show. Once you get to $35 silver, it's too late to be a long-term investor, really, uh, to really make, you know, a killing, if you will. Mm-hmm. Because by then, you know, Heckler will be up over 100%, you know, be at $8. And yeah, you make some money, but you're not going to get a five-bagger out of it. And so, you know, yeah. Don, it's interesting. I read a quote from you the other day that you said, when you're going after baggers, don't underestimate the risk required to get baggers. So is that how you in your mind, you're managing that risk is by A, buying a lot of them and B, by holding them for that long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. People, I mean, we see quality companies get hammered. Newmont, you know, if you buy, a lot of people are underwater big on Newmont. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at its high in 2020 to where it it went all the way down to $34. And I I would say my target for Newmont was 175, which is like a four, you know, three plus bagger. Um, So, I mean, Newmont's one of the better companies out there. So yeah, they're all high risk. So I always say, keep your allocations low. Try not to go above 1% per stock. If you do, you can have a few at 2%, maybe one at three, and be really careful with those stocks, keep an eye on them. But not too many above 1% is my thesis. You know, I have a, most of my high risk stocks are about at 2.5%. I really don't care if they go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. I don't. But this is the way I do it. I don't buy any stock unless it has, if I have a stock that's, only 2.5 in my cost basis, it has to have at least five, 500% upside. It has to ha- have a lot of upside or I don't own it. Mm-hmm. And I don't chase stocks. I mean, there's a lot of quality gold producers in Australia. Well, not a lot that I don't own. So I have 164 position, but I don't own Capricorn Metals, which I'd love to. They're getting close. They're almost a four-bagger right now. I don't own Evolution. It's just a little too pricey. And I don't own Gold Road. Um, that's another one I'd love to own. And then, and then there's, and then Bellevue, those four producers, those are four producers in Australia. I'd love to own them at cheaper prices, but if I'm going to do a small allocation on them or, you know, those are all quality. I mean, I could do half percent easy on those, but I want to get, I want to get the right price. I don't want to overpay. So those are four stocks. I, you know, maybe I'll get Capricorn here. If we crash evolution is a possibility. But I don't think I'm going to get every stock that I want. But mm-hmm. Those are really the only four stocks I don't own that I like to own. Mm-hmm. Don, there's one more topic I'd like to cover before we wrap up, if we could. And that's the idea of this de-dollarization through the world. You know, everybody 
sees this trend happening. So when do you think we're going to see, you know, physical manifestations of the world really coming uncoupled from the dollar? Or is this just a slow evolving glacial process in some ways? Yeah, I I really like this question. And this goes back to when I really became bullish. So I've been doing this for a long time, but I really didn't get bullish because I've always thought that the debt bubble would pop, but I didn't know when or what the trigger was going to be. And I always thought that, you know, it was going to have something to do with de-dollarization, if you will. But the trigger for me was the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. That's when I said, oh, I got, I, I got the right trade here. I became very, very confident I had the right trade because China basically has basically had an economic war with the U.S. for at least a decade. And Trump figured it out. Trump said, you guys, we know what you guys are up to. This is, you guys are taking advantage of us. You know, Trump was the first guy to basically say it. And Obama was, he was trading with China and had no problems with them. But then Trump basically said, called them out and he put, basically put tariffs in place. And then the Ukraine war happened and China basically showed their colors. Nobody really thought that China and Russia would cozy up so close together. I mean, really, really tightly after the Ukraine war began. I mean, chummy. They became chummy after. None this wasn't before the war started. It was after the war started. And these were, this was the omen that the U.S. is in big trouble. Because those are our two, two biggest enemies by far. Then a third enemy, Iran, they decide, oh, we're going to cozy up to both of these guys. So now you have this triumphant, these three countries, our three enemies are all buddy-buddy. And they want to create an economic system that excludes the U.S. The U.S. will never be invited into the BRICS. But, but just about everybody else might be. And I think this, a lot of this has to do with the U.S. snubbing their nose at China and not letting them in the G8. I mean, that's kind of insane. I mean, they're second biggest economy and they're not in the G8. What the heck's going on here? It's like China, I knew we just, we've been snubbing them for years. Mm -hmm. And China's like, okay, we're going to get our due. We get our opportunity. And the Ukraine war happened. And they said, okay, this is it. We're, we're doing it. We're going, we're basically declaring economic war on the U.S. We're going to, we're going to alley up with this company, this country they're, they're fighting against. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're fighting it. We're literally paying for that war. And, and here we have China and Russia allying up. And then you have the BRIC expansion, which is underway right now. The, U, the, the Russia right now is the head of the BRICS. They just got it this week. They're the president, whatever they call it, of the BRICS for one year. And they're going to have this big meeting in October. It's going to be in, in Russia. Well, I guarantee you this time, if you remember back in August, they didn't talk about you know, uh, what they're going to do as far as fund it. You know, we're going to create a token. We're going to create a currency. They didn't even talk about it, right? We're going to work. All they said was, we're going to work on it. I think a one-line thing, but they didn't actually really discuss it between themselves. Mm -hmm. It was a subject that was taken off the table. And the reason why it was taken off the table was because of um, India. India realized that they were screwed because if you're a net importer, you have to constantly buy that that doll that whatever that currency is mm -hmm. because you're not you're not exporting so you don't generate any but if you're China or Russia you're like you're just you, you don't have to you don't have to create any currency you just collect it 
right? It works great for you. And Brazil is another country. Uh, we're kind of open to it because they're oil producers and so they're going to collect it as well. Mm-hmm. But India was like, we're screwed. And so they basically were totally against it. And they, they basically shelled it. And they said, we don't want to talk about this here. But Russia, it's going to happen, I think, in October of next year. Guarantee you on the docket, they're going to be talking about, and this they have this, they've had all this time to basically figure what they're going to do. And what they're going to do is they're going to, they're not going to use the dollar. And so we're going to find out what their plan is here next October. But this summer, it'll all leak out. Their plan's going to leak out, leak out this summer. Whatever they, whatever they're planning to talk about in October, and I guarantee you, India is going to is going to be furious because because some one way or another, India is going to be the the odd man out. It's like because they don't they don't make enough stuff. Well, guess what? India is going to need to do. They're going to stop to have to start making something. Mm-hmm. You know, start inviting in you know the chip makers, and they need some exports. If they don't have any exports, then here's the irony of this whole thing is that guess who the net importer is right now? The U.S., right? So the BRICS are basically showing that, you know, it's not a good thing to be a net importer. That's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And and it's show, and they're, they're basically, you know, showing how the only reason why we've gotten away with it is because we're able, it's the reserve currency. But if it's not the reserve currency, then you're in a bad position. And that's what's going to happen to the U.S. I actually think that we're going to have a reset in 2027. I think the U.S. this whole debt bubble is going to begin to pop this year, and it'll take. And the Fed will do everything they can for about two more years to keep it alive, and basically try to get the U.S. economy back, you know, back in order. But they won't be able to do it, and then throw in the towel in 2027 and devalue. Basically, they're going to, I think what they're going to do is they're going to do away with the old dollar. Everybody will have to turn in their dollars. You want to be forced to do it. And, and they'll be able to do it through crisis. So the crisis is that, hey, we got to default on our debt. And so they're going to, I think what they're going to do is they're going to orphan all the external dollars. And basically say, well, they'll let some of the electronic dollars come in, but if if your money is is based if you if you if you acquired your money in an illegitimate way, there's you won't be able to get them back to the U.S. You you're gonna have to prove where you where those dollars come came from. Basically, mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly how they'll do it, but I think they because they don't want all those dollars to come flooding back. So I think they're going to orphan quite a few of them, and then yeah, then they force us all on you know CBDC. They basically say that this is the new currency, those old dollars, and that's how they devalue the dollar because they're gonna they'll basically once they have the CBDC, they'll say it's, it's worth this much. It'll be interesting to see how they do the reset, but I'm expecting a reset. Twenty twenty seven is my target. So you think that's the route they go instead of trying to revalue the gold that they have or trying to sell more debt? and thereby sacrificing the dollar, you know, they're just going to outright default. They don't have a choice. It's it's their only option. There's no way that they're going to use a hard, hard currency. They're going to use gold back. That just makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes no sense that they're going to be able to just keep 
the system going, which everybody thinks is going to happen, that they're just going to keep it going. They're just going to keep expanding debt. You know, it's going to go to 50 trillion, 100 trillion. People think that's going to happen. And I'm, I'm telling you, it won't work if foreigners don't buy our debt and if foreigners dump our debt. And so their only choice is CBDC. But the thing that's beautiful about CBDC for government is it allows them to basically do away from the do away with the black market. Black market will be dead. They'll use crypto for black market. Uh, and but the dollars they'll be able to track. Um, you know, it's really interesting. The IRS, I, I couldn't believe this. It kind of blew my mind. But the IRS actually put a new law into place that's just total insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, that went into effect uh, for fiscal 20 for right now for 2024. If you do a transaction, a crypto transaction over $10,000, you have, you personally, not according to the IRS thing, it's not, it's not um, uh, an exchange. It's the person who did the transaction either sent or received. It doesn't say, it just says, if you did a transaction, a crypto transaction over $10,000, you have to report it within. Here, here's the insanity part. You know, I, I don't have a problem with it if you, if you report it at the end of the year, but you have to report it within 15 days or else it's a felony, not a misdemeanor. If you don't report it within 15 days, it's a felony. Mm-hmm. And, and no, nobody even knows his laws on the books. Um, but here's the thing that's absolutely insane is that the IRS did this. So if you're a bank, and you um, or you're an exchange, let's say you're an exchange and you get, I think we're going to start hearing more about this. And, and somebody does a deposit of $10,000. They got to track and they got to report this stuff to the IRS within 15 days. It's like somebody put the thing up there. It's, it's, it's clear as mud what the IRS actually is expecting, who to do what, um, who has to report when, what type of a transaction. It's it's clear as mud. It just says if you, it's, if your transaction is over fifteen thousand within ten days, I mean over ten thousand, you have to report it within fifteen days. Mm-hmm. So that I think is the beginning of the you know they're going to try to they have to somehow get their arms around crypto for the black market because if if they try to do away with the black market, they're just going to make it the crypto world is going to take that all over and it, it can become a big mess for them. I don't know, but I, I am I am expecting CBDC to be released, and the only way they can force it on you is to basically do away with dollars. I, it's the only way I see it. Well, it's interesting to to see this in some ways, almost like a catch all legislation that was just put in for that. But on the other side of that, we've seen a lot of reports, like I believe it was out of Florida. And I think there was a couple other stories that I read that said that it's basically legislation that is introduced against CBDC. So is that not a positive indication to you that there are people that are thinking about this and resisting it already? Um, Yeah, there are. But um, as long as the national government exists... Anything the states want to do is irrelevant, kind of thing. You know, the states, it's they trumpet. You know, it's like it, we have a national currency and we have a national government. Um, now, down the road here, I actually think that 2024 is is year zero. Um, I'm I, this this thing's out in left field. What I'm about to say, but I feel that 2024 is actually year zero. 
for basically point forward of where America's heading. And what I mean by that is, is that after this year's over, we're, we're going to start ignoring the past because the past will be irrelevant. And the reason why it'll be irrelevant is because we're going somewhere new. The old, the old way doesn't work anymore. So I don't really care about history because the old models are so broken that I don't even need to pay attention to the past anymore. I don't need to pay attention to the news. Everything you say doesn't, it's just gobble, you know, blah, 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 because we're going somewhere new. By the end of the year, everybody's going to be to realize that the old way doesn't work. And part of this is going to be the election. I, I don't know how that's going to unfold. Part of it will be the election, but the, mo- the bigger part is going to be the economy. So you had 2016 was basically the year that politics broke and the media broke. After Trump was elected, nothing, there was, there was basically no debate in Washington anymore. Debate died. Mm-hmm. And then the media basically split apart and basically said that, you know, the media said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to do our job anymore. You know, we're not going to, we're not gonna, <laughs> basically what they said, we're not, we're, we're just going to stop doing our job. And they haven't, they, they quit doing it. I mean, if you look, if you think about it, starting in 2016, People stopped watching the news. They stopped. They're like, I'm not going to watch that. And then even Trump even called it fake news, which is, which is a great title, right? Because he's basically right. It's like, mm-hmm. can't believe a thing they say. They all have an agenda. And so, the, so in 2016, you had politi- polit- the politics died and the media died. Then in 2020, our institutions died where you can't trust them. So, you know, first it was basically the FDA with, with the vaccines and, and then the CDC and you couldn't believe a thing they were saying. Then it was basically the FBI of all people, the Treasury Department, um, the Borderland Border Security Home Department of Homeland Security. I mean, every anything they you couldn't believe a thing they said. The defense to you got to the point to it got to the point point where we couldn't even believe the Defense Department anymore. Um, you remember Afghanistan? We were trying to get them to tell us why what their plan, why were they doing all that. Nobody believed a word they were saying, right? It was like so our institutions basically died. Um, in in 2020, in 2024, I believe that our economy becomes dysfunctional. Now, I'm not, it's not going to die. Well, I, I think you can go back and say, in 20, 2016, our politi- pol- political system became dysfunctional. Our mainstream media became dysfunctional, and then 2020, our institutions became dysfunctional. And in 2024, our economy is going to become dysfunctional, and it's going to be. We're going to know it. In the U.S., the one thing about the U.S. is the U.S. has always been basically since the 18th century, 19th century. It's always been a country of individualism and and small business, family business, and success. You know the Horatio Alger story kind of thing, and in the the land of dreamers, the land of freedom, and all that, you could do accomplish whatever you want, potential to everything. Well. After this year, everybody's like, no, we're, we're all, we're screwed. There's this one guy on Twitter, and he's been tweeting for a few months now. He says, we're all effed. And he's, he's so spot on, but he doesn't even realize it. He's saying we're all effed because of the economy, but he's connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. Because America is basically a corporation. And once that a corporation stops working, the whole system breaks. Now, in tandem with the economy becoming dysfunctional, the one thing that I haven't mentioned, which is also dysfunctional, 
is the culture. You know, the culture wars that have all picked up, that is not getting better. That's getting worse. So the country is fragmenting. I mean, we've got the open border situation right now, mm-hmm. which is a major problem. That's why I said the, 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 this election in 24 is going to have a big, big impact of what I'm talking about. But by the end of this year, once the economy becomes dysfunctional and we start to recognize that, uh-oh, this thing's not coming, this thing's not, we're getting a new normal but the new normal is going to be much worse than the old normal. Um, this is this is bad. By the end of this year, I think people will be saying this is bad. And that's why I call it year zero, because 2025 and 2026 will, will be even worse. These are the, these are going to be the worst three years since the Civil War. And many in many respects, it'll be worse than that, because not only will you have the political fragmentation that you had from the 1860s, but in tandem with that, you'll have an economic system that basically you can't fix. And you know, and back then it was easy to fix economies. We, you know, we, we had a lot of major recessions back then, but we always came roaring back. Not this time. This time we're all going to recognize that it's a new game, a new strat, a new structure. And this is when people were going to. W- and the end result's going to be, and I don't know when this is going to become evident. It could be this decade, might be next decade, that our national government's going to go away. It's going to go bye-bye. And the reason why is because initially there'll be sections of the country that'll just split apart, will split, split away from it. And so they'll lose their influence, if you will. And then more and more places will basically secede away. And then initially it'll become irrelevant. And so I I see Washington. So right now the Fed is irrelevant. And over the next few years, Washington will become irrelevant as well. That's the future of America, which is pretty, pretty ugly mm-hmm. in the near term. But the good news is, is that these new regions, when they start over, they're actually going to start from a place America has its founding. America was based on freedom and liberty. So that will be the foundation of these new eras. And they're, and the one thing they're not going to allow is the government to be too big and strong. So there would be small governments with freedom and liberty, which is what we want. And so it's kind of a start over scenario, which will be very, very positive for the country. But it'll be countries. It won't be country anymore. That's That's kind of the bad thing. Mm-hmm. Don't you think, though, that they're like speaking about it in that way? No offense, Tom, but it's a little too generalistic because there's a lot. I would say, you know, in my experience in the U.S., there are, you know, big portions of the U.S. that want that liberty and the freedom. But there's also big pockets that want things taken care of for them. They want their, you know, electric cars. They want all of the things that modern society provides that doesn't necessarily include taking responsibility for your own financial well-being and right you know, that's exactly, in entire life right and that's exactly what's happening right now in the country that's why the political division has never been this extreme because you definitely have two different 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 thoughts of what governments should be but what i'm saying is that um those ones that want basically the old american you know, liberty f- comes first and the government comes second kind of mentality. 
um, small government, if you will, uh, those will be the first regions to break away. Mm -hmm. And the ones that try to hold on to the other way where the government tries to provide, I just think they'll be object failures. They won't work. And so they'll eventually they'll do the same thing. They will basically go their own way. They're like, Washington's not helping us. We got to figure this out on their own. They, I think they will try. Um, they will try to use that type of a um, big government approach, but it never works. I mean, Venezuela is probably the best example. But it just it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Government cannot solve problems; it just creates bigger problems. Um, so, you know, like I said, they will try to do it, but it won't work. Mm-hmm. And the, the places that thrive are the ones that allow people their inherent freedom. Because, I mean, let's face it, each individual feels free. I mean, they, I don't know about you, but I intuitively feel like I have free will. And I want to use that free will. It's it's like God-given. I've gotten this God-given free will. I want to use it. I don't want somebody to tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. Don, you you have to go to bed at 10 p.m. We're going to turn the power off at 10 p.m., and then we'll you will wake you up at five a.m. That type of thing, Big Brother. I was like, mm-hmm. that doesn't you know that doesn't fit well with me. I don't think it fits well with many Americans. Most Americans want their freedom because America's built on that concept. And I don't I don't think the idea of freedom will go away easily. I don't think it will go away at all. I think the majority of Americans believe that, and the rest of the world admires us for it. They admired Myers for this this all this idea of liberty and freedom, that that is you know the ultimate you know way that humans should live. Everyone should have self determination, and so that's the future. I believe is that, and America is is the perfect place to create it. Um, it kind of died in the nineteen sixties. In the nineteen sixties. We actually had the opportunity to go down that path of basically uh, freedom and liberty um, and not a big government. Mm-hmm. Don't let government get too big and not, you know, ruin it, if you will, ruin that, ruin our freedom. But, you know, what started in the 30s just started, just exploded in, in, in the 60s and 70s. It, we didn't. We never, we didn't, you know, if you go and you listen to Kennedy, Kennedy in the early 60s, if you listen to some of the stuff he talked about, I mean, he really, um, he didn't want government to get too big. He he wanted government to do its job, but, but, but we want freedom, the people, the will of the people needed to be at the forefront. Um, I think, you know, kind of his anti-Vietnam stuff was like, wait a minute, you know, in what interest is that for, for the American people? Let's let's say over, you know, the overall thing. I think he was kind of a focus. I That was the last time when government was working for the people and not for themselves. But once you once you start thinking about the government being the best uh, decider of how we live our lives or whatever, you know, big government work, if you think government works, once you start down that path. It, it's a slippery slope. And it, it, that's, that's the path we went down. And America, in, in my opinion, died in 1963. Mm-hmm. We just haven't had the funeral yet. 
And so now it's going to be, I don't know what, what they're going to call these new regions, but um, I don't think it's going to be the United States of America. Well, I would assume that if a place becomes that fractured, they're going to want to declare it, you know, this is a new new starting point. We're starting something or we're correcting from our old ways or where we got to. So I agree. I, I don't think it's going to be called anything, you know, very reminiscent of the States, if that's so what happens. Yeah. So, yeah, I... I... I think it starts this year that that whole fragmentation that that moved towards change, moved towards something new, moved towards something that works. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that this uh, political election is going to be a big part of it. In other words, whoever is elected will not be accepted by America. I don't know how that's going to unfold, but Reagan—I mean, not Reagan—Trump was basically not accepted by a big chunk a big portion of america could be him uh, possibly but whoever it is there's going to be a big portion of america where he is not accepted as the american president it's like Mm -hmm. and so the fragmentation basically takes on a new kind of a new life if you will and then when you in tandem with that the with the economy stumbling it'll start to spur you know, more fragmentation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that one of the, one of the things that's going to come out of this election, somehow that the border problem is going to get resolved. I don't know how, but that, that one, it, that, that one's really interesting to me is that because the border issue and you, you got a new election, those are huge. Those are both of those are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, those are going to, and then the other point is this, concept of what I call going your own way. I think this will manifest. If it doesn't happen in 2024, I expect it in 2025 after the new president comes in. And this is where states basically ignore federal law. And they basically say, no, we're going to create our own law for that. We're just, we're going to ignore yours. Mm -hmm. Now that hasn't really happened before. And that's going to be the beginning of the end of our state system. Because our state system is based on this idea that we adhere to federal law. Well, there's sure sure a lot of turbulence. I think in the in the year ahead, there's sure a lot of problems that need to either come to a head or be solved. Don and I appreciate you kind of giving us your perspective on all of this stuff. Is there anything that you want to touch on before we wrap up here? Um. I'm on Twitter most days. You guys can follow me there, Don Durrett at mm-hmm. Twitter. And then two R's, two T's. Yeah. And then check out my website, Gold Stock Data, if you own any gold and silver mining stocks. Mm-hmm. It's basically for just gold and silver mining stock investor investors. And you also have a substack, dondurette.substack.com, right? Yes. And, on, and I'm also on Seeking Alpha. Perfect. Thanks, Excellent, Don. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.